Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 73rd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday the 25th of November 2016, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we have a change of tack, a complete break from the Donald and all that jazz. We delve into the shady world of professional boxing with the former boxing manager, gambler, gangster, jazz pianist, writer and fight fixer that is Charles Farrell. Boxing is a sport that has always fascinated me. It's much more than a mere sport. I see it as a metaphor for life itself, full of light and dark, and failure and redemption. Charles has led a life straight out of a Pulp Fiction novel, from living on the streets of Boston from the age of 12 and playing piano in the hotels and brothels of Boston, to managing former heavyweight champion of the world, Leon Spinks. Charles is currently starring in a new documentary called Dirty Games about the corruption and fixing in the world of sport. He's also appearing in the new book The Bittersweet Science, a collection of essays from some of the greatest boxing writers, which is due out early next year from the University of Chicago Press. But before all that, I have a few people to thank first. The once-off donations of Ryan G, Jason B, Bridget M and Joseph S. And the new monthly subscribers, Peter S and Rita M. Thanks a million, everybody. Also, thanks to the new YouTube subscribers, Paul Robinson, Jay Brownnil, Javi1111, Bojan Zelik, Maria Elisa Rose, Hansu48, Cave Sufi, AV, Farco, Jason Perez, Sir Blunt, Aidan Johnson, Gary Steiner, Magic Shoe Monkey, and Nathan Bolek. Right then, to the interview. So, Charles, you've lived a very interesting life. Can you tell us about your background and where you came from? Well, uh, I'm from Boston, and uh, I grew up in a semi-affluent house, um, but a, a, a kind of bifurcated house, which is interesting. I have an educated father and an uneducated mother. And, and illiterate grandparents on my mother's side, uh, but they were show business people. So I was very taken with them. They're people I really uh, felt very close to. And they informed a lot of my decisions. Um, so I became a professional musician when I was very, very young, largely because it was sort of genetically handed to me. To, to do that. It was sort of assumed that that's something I could do. And it turns out it was something I could do. So I did that from the time I was about 12 or so. But then I wound up, I, I had followed boxing from the time I was very, very young. And I think I have a natural aptitude for perceiving what goes on in it in a kind of sophisticated way. So I got the opportunity to make a living doing that. 
And that's what I wound up doing for many, many years. I stopped playing piano in public when I was in my late 20s, um, just because I'd been doing it for so long and I was doing it so, it, the, the work was so extensive. Were yeah. you classically trained or jazz pianist or, or what style were you? I, I made my living playing jazz, but I play, you know, there's sort of nothing about the piano I can't handle. I, uh, but I'm self-taught. I mean, but I, on the other hand, I, I play classical music quite seriously. I, I, still, I still practice at least three hours every day, aside from however long I actually play, you know, which depending on the piano that's at the house can, can be a number of hours too. So, I mean, it's really what I do. Starting playing professionally at 12, that's, that's quite a young age to be doing it professionally. Were you, did you drop out of school or what happened? Yes, I did. I, I, I left school in what we called in those days here junior high school. I got as far as eighth grade and I was restless. I was always really a restless kid. And I thought, well, let me, let me see what my, <laughs> sounds, sounds funny in hindsight, you know, but let me see what my adult life is going to be like. Um, so in effect, that's when I started my adult life. I played in hotels, in lounges, in bars. Um, the, in Boston at the time, there used to be radio stations where you could, you could do, you know, have a show and get paid. Uh, there was TV work, but I did a lot, almost, I mean, at one point I, I hit the black gospel circuit, uh, which was kind of a, an enjoyable thing to do. So there were a variety of opportunities that presented themselves to a working musician. And I, I did quite, quite a few of those, but primarily I did jazz. It was a, you could make a living playing jazz at the time. And so how did you jump from boxing into, into music, or from music into boxing? Well, as I said, I, I, I always was a, a very serious student of boxing. I started watching boxing on TV when I was, you know, three or four years old or something like that. And by the time I was eight or nine, I was really immersed in it. Um, I, you know, I wasn't immersed in the culture of boxing yet, which becomes something that becomes increasingly interesting the more you are around boxing. But I, I followed the sport really, really carefully. And I started spending time in gyms. I started to know fighters pretty well. And I wound up, initially what I wound up doing is giving people advice about gambling because I had a, you know, I, I had a good track record in terms of being able to tell who was going to win fights. So I sort of got in do the business through the back door that way. And then I started giving fighters advice. And a little later, I decided to kind of go legit with it and started to manage and promote and do some matchmaking. And I did that unofficially from the time I was probably in my early 20s and started doing it kind of on the record, you know, where there was a a paper trail or a, um, when I was in my later thirties, but at that point I'd already been doing it for a long time. When you say you were making a lot of money from the boxing, was that primarily your living at the time? It, well, it was my living at the time for, uh, yeah, yeah. I would say 
that there was a period of about maybe 20 years or so all told where my primary source of, of, of revenue would have been through boxing. You got into gambling with, was, am I right here, by far the Russian and, and uh, Italian mobs at this time? That was a little bit later. That was when I had already been in the business. Surf. I mean, there's, there's a point at which you, you kind of go public where, you know, you get licenses and things like that, which is something I hadn't bothered to do when I was young. But you're getting promoters' licenses, managers' licenses, uh, things like that. And so when I started matchmaking and for, for gamblers or for gangsters, or I was already a little bit older. You know, that, that probably started when I was in, again, maybe my late 30s or so. That was more the process of, of, of matching fighters for them as they want to develop their fighters. Is that it? So you'd know which fighters they would be, give them a good test, but probably not be able to defeat them. Yes. Um, but again, I, I, I have to be very specific here because it depended on the situation. There were times when you do matchmaking and promotion and managing, there are times when you're dealing with fighters who you think might have some potential and that potential can range from very limited to, you know, almost limitless. And if you're doing it that way, you're looking for fights that will test your fighter or will develop him or will, will answer certain questions that you have about him. I can do that and sometimes that's what I would do. But there are also times when boxing has got nothing to do with fighting. It really has to do with marketing. And so whether a guy can fight or not is secondary to what you can make people think about what he could do. And in that case, the likelihood is I would just fix the fights. When you say fix the fights, what different techniques or what kind of ranges of fixing are we talking of here? Because I, I'm a big boxing fan and you can say you go to watch a, a card here beyond in London in a few weeks and you know there there might be 10 bouts in on the card and seven of them you know exactly what's going to happen. Right well I mean as I've discussed with other people before and you may have heard this there, there are a number of ways that you can do it. The most effective way to do it is to know people who are basically agents for losers. And that, that's a very, I mean, everybody in boxing knows about that. And it's a very uh, vibrant business. And these are guys who will send in opponents who are expected not to win. Now, generally, I mean, again, there's, there, there are, there's a range and there are a lot of nuances. They can range from guys who don't fight very well, who wouldn't win no matter what, to guys who are out of shape so that they can't go any real distance. Even if they're maybe potentially not bad fighters, if they've been out of the gym, they're only good for two or three rounds. Um, to guys who just fall down, you know, if you hit them or even if you miss them. And, you know, I, I would avail myself of all of those situations, you know, but that's, that comes from knowing people who deliver those type of opponents, but there are other ways to do it too. You can do it through judges. You can do it through referees. So it really does depend on the situation. It depends on the fighters involved and it depends specifically 
on what the result needs to be. So when you get to, say, a situation, we've had a situation, say, in in UK, one UK promoter in particular, Eddie Hearn, has had a vast number of strange decisions from judges, particularly for, not down the list, but for his main headline acts. There's been a lot over the last, say, year and a half of odd decisions it seems to be quite systemic to me. Do you, do you think like a promoter that's so major is actually given an envelope to a judge or how, do, how would this process work? Is there a Swiss bank account? No, no, there isn't. Or, or the, I, can't, I can't say there never is. There are, those things exist. But no, I think this is the point where you have to understand culture, boxing culture in specific, and what people can expect from from providing a certain result. My guess is, generally speaking, that judges don't need to be told much of anything because they understand there's a red corner and there's a blue corner. And they understand, you know, that the blue corner is the corner that the promoter is interested in. And so the result should look good for the blue corner. You don't have to be told those things necessarily. And their compensation is that they work all the, the, the judges, I mean now, work all the time. So if they're providing the, the, uh, the result that the promoter wants, they're going to get the calls. They're the judges that you're going to find. And it, it's, a, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship between the promoters, the, the judges, uh, sometimes the commissions, you know, everybody works in conjunction to getting the result that they want. And, and what that winds up doing is keeping an ongoing flow of money passing, you know, and that's, that's really what you want. So it's, it's important for people to keep Eddie Hearn happy because Eddie Hearn generates the machinery that revenue comes from. It's kind of somewhat nearly like a, a systemic bias or collusion, but not maybe an explicit one. I would say that's accurate, right? So how often in these big title fights do you see outright what we would call fixing, you know, as opposed to, say, this kind of soft management of results? You, you see it occasionally. I don't see I, I don't think you see it often. Because out-and-out fixing seldom looks right. There aren't people who know how to do it very well, especially these days. I mean, it's sort of a lost art. So I don't think that – I think most of the fights that you watch are legitimately contested on the part of of, uh, both participants, especially past a certain point. You know, when we're talking about televised fights – by and large, you're seeing honest efforts, even if, you know, even if what's going on behind the scenes in regard to the result is questionable. A lot of times, I, I'll give you an example. I think, and I, I've talked about this before, I think the first Pacquiao-Bradley fight was a fixed fight. And I think I know how it was fixed and why it was fixed. But essentially, the two participants fought to the best of their ability with one caveat. And that is, I think that Manny Pacquiao made it a point not to knock out Tim Bradley when he could. But other than that, I think you saw a real fight with a lot of business being done 
um, below the surface. So describe this business. Well, I, I mean, I think this one was fairly simple. I think it was a betting coup. You know, the, the trick was at eight to one to bet what you could on, on Bradley, get the odds, make sure that the decision itself was a horrible decision. I mean, make sure that the fight was legitimate enough so that people watching it understood that there was no question but that Pacquiao won it so that his marketability is in no way impinged upon. But the betting coup that you need is taken care of. So you're, you're making your money, but you're also protecting your market value fighter. And in this situation, do you think that the fighter was involved in this? I think that my, my guess is that Tim Bradley had no idea whatsoever and that Manny Pacquiao was one of the people who benefited from, from the decision. So I think if I were to guess, I would say that Manny knew it and Tim did not. And that you would think that judges were probably paid in that kind of scenario. Judges, judges were, were taken care of. The, the nature of what that is, can, again, can vary dramatically. <laughs> uh, but, y you know, sure, sure. Yeah, no, so, so that's an interesting one. I, there's a, another famous one was the Lennox Lewis versus Evander Holyfield, the first right. fight. Right. Where we had, uh, I think that came, it was, was it a draw? It was a draw. Was an obviously lopsided fight. What, 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 what do you think is, is that a similar scenario playing out there? Or yes. is, that, is that merely one side protecting? protecting well, I mean, this, okay, no, in, this, in this particular case, it was Don King, if, if I remember correctly. And what happened there, and, and this, is, this is a sort of telltale sign. When you get a judge who no one's ever heard of, who's brought in from out of town and then disappears and who comes up with a score that's, that seems to have no basis in what everyone else is watching, you've got a bot judge. And if memory serves, that's exactly what happened in that fight. There was a, I'm trying to remember the woman's name. As far as I know, no one had ever heard of. And she disappeared, just, she disappeared after that, right? You know, that, that's a, a broker deal, no question about it. You've made an argument before about fixing fights from an ethical point of view. Let me, let me predicate this by saying that when I first started managing fighters, I was a pretty young guy at the time, I thought of boxing in, in terms of its interest and value as a sport. I, I didn't think as a businessman exactly, or I thought of a businessman as a businessman in a very naive way. You know, I'll have a good fighter, my good fighter will beat people, I know how to match make, I know how to maneuver the fighter, and we'll make money that way. But when you spend a lot of time in gyms, and I have spent untold hours in gyms, watching fighters spar, one of the things that becomes clear to you is that there is no good exit strategy for most fighters. No matter what happens to them, they're going to get hurt really, really badly. You know, I, I, people don't like to talk about this, but the damage is nearly inevitable and it, it's invisible in a sense, unless, unless they take a terrible beating that's, you know, that's seen on television by millions of people. 
the kind of degeneration that takes place is very subtle and it happens over time. So I wound up seeing that these guys were getting horribly damaged. Um, and they, these are people who you know, became friends and family to me after, after a point. So here's what I knew. I knew that in 10 years, the guys I was friends with were gonna be very, very different people. And they were gonna be very, very diminished. I also knew that the likelihood is that they weren't gonna wind up with any money. And at this point, I started to have to think about this sport as a culture. I had to think about it, in a, in a, ironically, in a way that I thought was ethical. And I know a lot of people are going to disagree with that concept, that fixing fights is ethical. But I thought, if they don't have to go, if, if what I know about the business is going to allow me to make decisions that will keep them from getting beaten up, and maybe put some money in their pocket. That's what I'm gonna do. I mean, I'm a big fight fan, but in terms of allocating priorities, I thought, okay, well, my obligation is to look out for the, the welfare of the people I represent insofar as I can do it. And suddenly fixing fights didn't seem so onerous. It started to seem like, all right, this, this, is, this is the right thing for me to do. Now, what I'm t the way I'm telling you this now is not nuanced. I'm not giving you a nuanced picture here. And it certainly makes me out to be a better guy than I might be in the sense that what I was doing was never entirely altruistic. It had an increasingly altruistic component to it. But I was also in business and I also wanted to make money. And that never was, that was never a non-factor. So, you know, mea culpa as far as that goes. But, um, you know, I was business partners with, with Floyd Patterson for quite a number of years. Floyd is an ex-heavyweight -heavy champion. Right. Multi-time, multi two-time heavyweight champion. And a guy I really, really admired. I thought, I thought the world of him. Very, very good guy. But he was damaged really beyond repair by his years in the business. And, of course, I, 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 as you may or may not know, I also managed Leon Spinks very late in his career. And that's a guy who is irrevocably damaged by having been in boxing. So, you know, I've got kind of firsthand knowledge of what happens. And if you're in this business, you know, you're responsible for your actions. And uh, anyway, it became a fair, actually a very easy decision for me to make, and I still stand by it. When it came to your fixing of, of, of matches, was it, was it all fighters you're protecting or some that you thought that were closer to being damaged? No, it was, it was um, you know, it, it, again, it's a, it's a finely calibrated series of choices that you make. For example, at one point I was managing Freddie Norwood, who was, who was the featherweight champion. 
And I, before he was a champion, he was almost impossible to get fights for because he was so good and his style was so subtle. And he was such a marketing nightmare for, for promoters. So the only way to move him forward, and I understood what a good fighter he was, was be willing to put him in against anyone, anytime, under any circumstances, knowing that he could handle himself. So I didn't have to be cautious. In fact, I could be, I could be very aggressive in terms of how I made matches for him. You know, I could, I could offer him as an opponent to the most dangerous guys out there, knowing that he would win. But there were also people like Leon um, who I really had to make very, very careful decisions about. And, you know, I, I really couldn't put in with anybody who would punch him. I mean, who would punch him with any kind of seriousness. So, again, we're talking about a, a range of responses to whatever situation presented itself, you know, and that, that has to be, there's a prism that you have to go through in terms of who the fighters are, what the, what the situations are, who the opponents are. I wish I could give you a simple answer, but there isn't one. So what was the greatest mess up you ever made trying to fix a fight? I can't talk about it. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase that question. Tell us about there was one famous mess up that you had with Leon Spinks. Well, okay, that that one I can't talk about. That one I can't talk about. Um, Leon got offered a fight in China against Larry Holmes, and the fight would have, I mean, it didn't pay anything close to what Leon would have earned during his heyday, you know, when he was a champ, uh, around the time of the Ali fights, when he's, you know, he, I think he made $4 million for the return match with Ali, which was very, very good money in those days. But the fight in China would pay $175,000, which, which, which was quite good for Leon at that stage of his career. The, the only problem with it was that it was going to be against Larry Holmes, you know, who really, really was a great, great fighter. Um, so I knew that, that Leon had the potential to get bad, really badly hurt by Larry. So I had a talk with Larry and I got his assurance that he would at least take it, take it easy. On, on Leon, you wouldn't hurt him. And I would, uh, you know, on, from my end, I would stop the fight as, as, you know, as soon as it became feasible to do that. The problem was that I had to get Leon back on the map a little bit. So I took a fight for him, a fairly high profile fight in DC. It was, strangely enough, it was for uh, being promoted by guys who were running a campaign to get Marion Barry reelected to, to mayor there. So Marion Barry actually was the ring announcer. I, I got a guy, friend of mine, who was, you know, a journeyman heavyweight to go and fight Leon, he would lose. You know, that was predetermined, it was a fixed fight. And then my guy came up with a bad CAT scan and he couldn't get passed by the DC um, commission. So I had another friend 
who was a very, very tough character, but not a fighter. He'd never had a fight in his life. He was a boxing trainer, a guy named John Carlo. And so I had John Carlo step in for my other friend. And I made up uh, a record for John Carlo, and I did it by coming up with names of real fighters in non-sanctioned states. It took a little bit of work to do it, but things that were not traceable, and I got him passed by the commission. I, you know, his, his record, in fact, was zero and zero, and I think we had him listed as 13 and two. And my biggest mistake is I didn't tell John to, to lose. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is we, we laughed about it beforehand, you know, because he had never fought before. And although Leon was shot, the fact is he had been a, a, a real heavyweight champion, beat Muhammad Ali for the title. And so the assumption you go under is that he can, he can beat a guy off the street, even if the guy off the street is a tough guy. And so I, John even said to me, what if I beat him? And we both laughed about it. And I said, well, that's, you know, <laughs> John, come on. Don't be crazy. That's not going to happen. But if you can do it, do it. Um, and essentially, he beat him with the first punch that he threw. So that's, that's the biggest mistake I made in terms of mistakes I can talk about. So that basically scuppered his chance to fight for the heavyweight title. Well, I mean, he didn't have a chance to fight for the heavyweight title, but he would have had a chance to fight Larry Holmes in China for, for, for very, very good money. Oh, sorry. And Larry wasn't Larry wasn't the champ at the time. No, no, no. Larry was an old... We were all old men at that point. No, no. I think, I think Leon was um, in his early 40s. Larry was in his mid-40s. And Larry was go, you know, going through that, uh, that sunset tour that, that lasted for, you know, 15 years or so. Where... Long. Yeah, well, you know, he's one of the guys who's a success story in this business. You know, he's completely, completely sharp, you know. But, I mean, there aren't many Larry Holmeses around. No, particularly Larry Holmes. He, he was in an awful lot of wars as well. It's surprising that he survived. Well, he was a great defensive fighter, though. He really was. Um, and, you know, but so, so much of this stuff is just pure... You know, neurological luck of the draw. There's no way that you can determine that. You know, you get someone like George Foreman, who's just fine. You know, um, Marvin Hagler, just fine. Marvin Hagler was in, in, you know, countless wars. He's perfectly okay. But I've known guys who've had a dozen fights and, uh, you know, they're going to be damaged beyond repair. No question about it. Another, actually an Irish fighter that was in untold battles was Wayne McCullough. And yeah, I, I know Wayne. I actually made some of Wayne's first matches. Although I'm not sure if he knows that. When he was in America, when he started. Yes, in Boston. In Boston. His trainer was um, Eddie Futch, yeah. But when, when Wayne McCullough was first brought to the States... I'm not even sure if I'm not, I don't remember if Eddie was training him at that point. He may have been, but maybe not. Maybe that was a little later, but he was brought to Boston just out of the Olympics. I think with the assumption that, you know, Boston is, is, has got a very, very large Irish population and that he'd be welcomed here and he'd do really good business. I mean, I, he was well liked here, but 
I remember watching him and people in the business saying, having assumptions about Wayne, about what kind of fighter he was, and they were completely wrong about him. They just, they just entirely misassessed him. And uh, in what way? Well, I was told when I saw him, this is before I made matches for him, that he was a very aggressive guy, very busy, and that certainly turned out to be true, but that he was a big puncher. And I remember picking his opponent for, I forget which fight, but fight, a fight here in Boston. And he was brought in, and my business partner, Pat Petronelli, had been assigned the job of kind of looking out for him. And I said to Pat, this guy can't punch at all. I mean, if, if, if you match him up as a puncher and put him in against durable guys who he's going to, you know, he's supposed to knock out, it's not going to happen. And he gets hit a lot. So you've got to be, you got to be careful with him. And my suggestion is that you reevaluate him as a fighter and try and figure out really what his strong suit is and how to match him intelligently based on what he can do. And at that point, you know, he, he left, I, I don't know if he had more than a couple of fights and he might've only had one fight in Boston. I can only remember one, but I think there may have been a few. And he, he moved to Vegas. I, you know, I, I don't know him and, uh, but I know he's a guy, I gather he's okay, but, but, uh, his fights were brutal. I mean, he had very, very tough fights. And I, I know that he was a guy who took great pride in the fact that he had never been knocked out. And I know, you know, Margaret Goodman, who was a great, great ring physician, had to stop one of his fights. I'm trying to remember which fight it was. And he was heartbroken. And I mean, she really did the right thing. And there's a, you can see there's a YouTube video of her stopping I think it's the only time he was ever stopped of the discussion they have in the ring. That is a great, great example of how a ring doctor should comport him or herself. It's, it's a, it's, it's a great little piece to look at if you ever get a chance. Yeah. With, I've seen interviews with him recently and he's talked about how there is some study being done, I think to do with neurological disorders from sports people so they're doing a lot, I think, in gridiron, American football, and also boxing. He did all these neurological tests, and he's completely clear. He's got a 100% clean bill of health, which is amazing, because he was in, he had such a kind of a poor defensive style, and he went in against, like, I'm just thinking of who he went in against. He went in with Nassim Hamad, Barrera, Morales. Eric, Eric, Eric Morales, Eric, yeah, right. Eric right. Morales, that fight was just, he just got punched 100 times in the head in every round. That's right. How did how he came out through the far side? I think I even remember him not getting his license sometimes because people just assumed he was going to be damaged with the amount of of punishment he took. Amazing how the, the just the genetic variety and how some guys can take it and other guys can't. The thing is, though, I would I would I would suggest caution here because I, I always say wait wait ten years after someone's career is over before you can really, really assess them. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, there's, there's scientific evidence where, you know, people 
evaluate neurological damage. But, you know, Floyd Patterson was the boxing commissioner for, for New York State. So somebody thought he was okay, and he sounded okay. But if you're a boxing person, it would take you five seconds to realize that he wasn't okay. I hope Wayne is okay, and he may be, but he also may not be. There are, there are telltale signals as to whether a fighter is hurt, and they have to do with reaction time to information imparted. You know, there's, there's a, a kind of time lag where the information has to be processed and it's not the kind of direct instantaneous apprehension of information that somebody who's not damaged would have. And there's also a kind of verbal impairment that goes along with it. it it's something that you learn to read uh, after a point and fighters can read it very, very well, but also people who are around the fight business you know, it has to do with the way people move. It has to do with what their eyes do. There's, again, there's a, there's a, there's a verbal issue here, too. There's a, there are issues of verbal articulation that are pretty clear-cut. Uh, there's a fatigue and a lethargy that's set in. Um, there are a lot of signs, you know, and... I've come to rely on them. I, I don't think I necessarily need to see a lab report to tell you if a guy's hurt or not. How exploitative is the whole business when you get into it? It's inherently exploitative. You're, you're talking about people. You're talking about people who come from the most disenfranchised backgrounds imaginable, and the goal of the business is for them to get hit mostly in the head. Uh, if that's not exploitative, I don't know what is. Personally, I struggle with my own ethics when it comes to boxing. And I, every time there's an accident in the ring, I, I feel like I should never watch it again, but I'm somehow drawn to it. What do you make of the idea of banning boxing? You know, it, it's because it's never going to happen. It never has happened. It never will happen. To me, it's... It's a useless conversation to have. Um, you know, that's like saying, well, why don't we ban bad people? Then there'll only be good people. Why don't we ban weapons? Because, you know, then nobody will shoot each other. Well, those, that's great. I, I agree with those things. But they don't happen. They can't happen. Boxing is something that people have been watching in various forms for thousands of years and you know in in, in its in a facsimile to of its current state for 500 years and something very close to its current state for the 150 years so it will always exist i think that you watch it or you don't watch it but you don't regulate it and you know without understanding its culture without understanding it from the roots up it's not it's not an activity that lends itself to altruism you know so people who try to be do-gooders uh, does it, um, how free are we in terms of what kind of language we can use here
You can use any type of language you want. Okay. The, the people who are, you know, attempt to be good do-gooders do regarding boxing inevitably fuck it up. So in what way? What do you mean by that now? They're what, what they're doing is they're what, looking at a very, very small piece of a very big picture. And they're making judgments predicated on the small piece that they're seeing. And so they're not taking into account culture. They're not taking into account what people have in terms of choices. There's a degree, you know, that there's, there's a degree of paternalism to it. There's a degree of colonialism to it. I, you have to understand in boxing that people will get hurt. You can say, I don't want to be part of this. I can't morally, ethically allow myself to take part in what I'm seeing. That's a, that's a legitimate position to take and it's, it's an admirable position to take. And I'm sympathetic to anyone who takes it, but it's going to exist. And at one point you have to come to terms with that and you have to determine whether or not, and I, I know I did this at one point, whether you're in it or you're out of it, you know, and I was in it for a long, long time in order to do that you have to understand it in its entirety. And the people who run boxing in terms of commissions don't see it from the kind of holistic perspective that would allow them to make informed decisions. You know, that we're mostly talking about white people of some means making judgments about what's good or what's bad for black and brown people uh, of, of no means. Well, that's, that's not their right to do. They're overstepping their bounds. But they also don't understand the business itself. So the things that we were talking about earlier, the kind of manipulation that gets done, the fixing, the, the kind of sleight of hand that many, many fighters engage in to get through people in commission generally don't know anything about, or if they do know it, they know it at a very naive level. And so, for example, I mean, and this is just one example of many, they'll see a guy who loses almost all of his fights and they'll say, okay, well, we got to pull this guy out for his own good. And that's not the guy that you have to pull out because you don't understand that this is a guy who really does understand the business. He's not getting hurt. He's losing fights in order to make money, and he knows how to do that. Um, and that's way beyond the scope of most people who are involved in commission work or appointees, you know, uh, and, and generally, you know, boxing fans uh, who you know, maybe took it up in college or whatever it is that they did. But it shows a complete unawareness of the cultural reality that you need to know about in order to make really informed judgments about boxing and boxers. What are your thoughts on a damager game? It seems to me the amateur game is a very it's a very positive thing, the amateur game. 
you know, I don't follow the amateurs anymore, so I don't really know. Um, you know, to me, it's a different sport, and it's a sport I don't really know much about, and so I don't feel qualified, you know, to, to give you a good answer to that. I mean, obviously, the shorter the fights, the more closely monitored the action in the ring, the safer it's going to be. But to me, that's a, it's a different sport. And I'm not sure how much one has to do with the other, you know, except on a very superficial level. And, you know, I, 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 I'm, again, I, I really feel sort of ill-equipped to talk about this with any kind of authority. But I don't, my, my intuitive sense is that almost nobody goes into amateur boxing wanting to be the amateur champion of the world. They don't want their career to end there. So they they have their eye always on the professional game. I I you know I think so. I think there's a kind of absolutism of being the champion of the world, whatever that means. I think it you know at one point it meant a tremendous amount, and I think it still means a good deal. Well, well, thanks, Charles, very much for coming on the show today. Oh, Tom, thank you for inviting me. It was really a great, great pleasure. On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, by Sun Ra and his orchestra and you're now listening to Charles himself play I Love This Place thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega and remember please like subscribe share tweet or leave a review on iTunes it really helps spread the word about the podcast <laughs>